you are a fiction writer with zero newsletter subscribers, wondering how you can get all the way to 20,000 newsletter subscribers with some paying subscribers making you over $15,000 per year in recurring revenue, well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Descriptions for Authors podcast. It's me, Michael, and I'm here with my co-host, Amelia Rose, who will be here in just a second after this intro. Today, we are joined by Elle Griffin, the author of Subscurity and the forthcoming Oblivion. She's a journalist in the technology space, and she's an incredible writer who documents her journey trying to make it as a fiction writer in 2022 on her newsletter, The Novelist, which I'll encourage you to subscribe to it's in the description or comments wherever you're listening or watching and it's really full of incredible insights about how she's been able to grow her subscription because as i mentioned she has twenty thousand people reading this and she hasn't really done any fancy paid advertising she tried social media but as you'll find that wasn't what really ended up working for her and as she kind of stares from her secret tips and story that really got her to where she is i think It'll be inspiring and also incredibly insightful for all of us writers. So I won't hold us up anymore before we get into it. If you aren't part of the Descriptions for Authors community, you should join our Facebook group where you get insights from hundreds of authors, some best-selling, some who are just getting started, everyone trying to do better at running a subscription business as a fiction author. And as well, we are talking a lot about Substack today. It's a newsletter platform that enables you to monetize your newsletter and make money. And we are actually building something here by fiction authors for fiction authors. It's called Ream. It's launching soon. And if you're interested in a platform that allows you to have a community and your stories all in one place, then you should check out our mailing list in the description and we'll notify you when it launches. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let's get into it. I am so excited to just be here with you. If I didn't encourage anyone already to subscribe to The Novelist, which is her amazing newsletter, I'm going to encourage them here. And sorry for two call to actions, but it's urgent. You should really be there experiencing Elle's great work. But obviously you haven't been writing The Novelist forever. This has been a journey for you over the last really year and a half, two years of growing this newsletter that both has a free component and a paid subscription. And you've done really well. You've done some pretty fantastic things. So I would love to just get an overview of what your journey has been like from day one to now. Yeah. So I wrote a Gothic novel, did the normal thing of submitting it to agents. They didn't want it because my comps were all 100 year old books, which is not a smart marketing strategy. It's a Gothic novel. (laughs) So nobody reads it. So I started researching the industry. I realized that I was going to have maybe a thousand people who liked my book more than I would have a hundred thousand people who liked my book, in which case putting it up on Amazon and trying to sell it for $10 was not a very good strategy. And so I started kind of researching Amelia's world using the creator economy and using subscriptions where authors earn a monthly subscription instead of like a one-time thing. So I decided to, I tried Patreon and Substack at the same time. Substack was, there are some fiction writers that are already using Patreon for this purpose, like Amelia, but I ultimately decided to go with Substack because it was based specifically for writers. So you can follow a writer on the platform. You can have as many free subscribers as you want, and then you can also have a paid component. And so I did that and I serialized my Gothic novel. It took me about a year. It just completed like a month ago. And then I put it up on Kindle. And while I was doing this very important part, 
I just kind of documented my whole journey. So there was a nonfiction newsletter of just like me researching the industry and learning more about it as I went, in addition to the fiction that was serialized. After the kind of one year in, like when I started, I had 1,700 newsletter subscribers and $0 in income. By the end, I had 5,600 newsletter subscribers and $15,294 in income. And that's where I am now. And I'm getting ready to serialize my next novel and do that one live. So that'll be interesting. This is amazing. And when she says $15,000 in change in income, that's also recurring income because it's through subscriptions, which is incredible. And you're actually the first like person I've ever like joined a, I did the annual membership, but that I've like officially subscribed to like as individual creator, because I was just so inspired by what you're doing. And I originally found you in the means of creation article that you wrote, because I'm a big fan of Legion and Nathan who, who run that. And you were talking about partially like part of the power law and publishing and the idea that I believe it was like 70,000 books that sell between one and 10,000 copies a year. Then you have maybe like a much smaller amount that are between 10 and a hundred thousand. And then very few ever sell above a hundred thousand, which I thought was fascinating. And for you, as you're uncovering these learnings about the publishing industry, how did your subscriber base evolve? Like your, who did your readers end up being? Well, it was interesting because, yeah, I was looking at the publishing industry. You're correct. There was like, I looked at a bunch of stats for 2020 and it, it turned out being that 268 books sold more than 100,000 copies. So that's not very much. That's like the smallest of any industry, like the top 10 best streamed movies on Netflix see like 60 million watches. Meanwhile, like the top books that we sell, sell 100,000. That's like nothing. So I was like, okay, nobody's reading books anymore. At least we're not really buying them. But I was like, not, I wasn't really willing to like pivot my craft to like movie writing or something. I still see the value in writing. And luckily, kind of around the time that I was starting my newsletter, like Substack, was really starting to get into the flow. They're they're only five years old. They like just hit their five year mark. And the first like four years of Substack, especially the first three years of Substack was like, it was a very small company. They had like very few writers. It wasn't very mainstream. And so like, right when I started on Substack, a bunch of other people started on Substack and they got, Substack got a huge investment from Andreessen Horowitz and became suddenly became this like started putting all these resources into developing it. They came out with the app. Um, when I published my article about fiction, all these fiction writers flocked to the app and now there's like a huge fiction base there. So it was kind of fortuitous that right when I was starting my newsletter, Substack was also getting really big and that very much like helped my subscriber base. So now now most of my subscribers come from within the Substack network. Like people are subscribed to other Substack newsletters and then they subscribe to mine because they just find it through the network effects of the app. So I said I had 5,600 newsletter subscribers, 1,200 of those came from just within the network. So, so those are, so now there's starting to be like this market of people that are just used to subscribing to newsletters and to paying for them. And I think there's even some stats on Substack that it's like, if somebody pays for one newsletter, they're like 30% more likely to pay for another one because their payment information's already in there. You can make just one click like pay. So yeah, so it's been, that's kind of who my subscriber base is now and continues to be. The fact that you've been able to get 1200 from Substack. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. People are like, 
just do it on Ghost and do it yourself? I'm like, no. In terms of getting discovery, though, like that is that is like the biggest conversation for I think all writers, no matter what our stages, but especially in the beginning, like in order to have an audience and then to be able to turn that audience to community, that requires other people or maybe Twitter bots. But maybe we'll get later into your debacles with Twitter, which Twitter can be a not so fun place. But talking broader about social media. How has that impacted your ability to grow? Where are your readers coming in from, let's say, outside of Substack? So I took a non-traditional approach because when I started my Substack, I didn't have any social media accounts at all. So when I launched my Substack, I also launched a Twitter account and an Instagram account. I also, at the time, had a Clubhouse account, I <laughs> And I started using my LinkedIn account. Like I had one for work, but I wasn't really like publishing anything on it. But because I'm a journalist, my strategy was to pitch. So I would reach out to somebody like you, Michael, and be like, I, here's something that I'm doing on Substack. I'm serializing that book. Like, if you think that's interesting, I'd love to talk to you about it on your podcast. Or I would like share certain articles with journalists that wrote about those industries. Like those two articles I wrote, tearing the publishing industry apart. That was the first time those stats were available. That was like my original research. So when I started pitching those stories to journalists, they just kind of took it and went far and wide. And the stories were featured on Business Insider and in the Morning Brew newsletter and kind of everywhere because I was pitching the, pitching it everywhere. And those stats didn't exist. Like I updated the Wikipedia article for for the New York Times bestseller list with all the stats that I had found and citing my own article. So so I think that just caused people to share that really far and wide. And that's where my subscriber base came from. So it didn't come from social media. By the time this month, when I deleted my social media, Twitter had my Twitter account had 1000 followers and my Instagram had like 50 or something because I didn't really use it. And my LinkedIn had like 1500 followers. So I wasn't I kind of like was growing them at the same time as my newsletter, but it was also a waste of time because people weren't only like a hundred something of people came from social media to subscribe to my newsletter. So it just wasn't really worth it for me. Super, super interesting. You got discovered doing what you do, which is writing long form content. Actually, like people can read that and then they get more of what they already were there for, which which makes a lot of sense. And I know that you think a lot about social media. I mean, for those who haven't read her newsletter, she like really dives deep into where this is all going in publishing and trying to really think about how we can build a better space for writers. And for you, how do you imagine building your own community? How, How have you gone about that? And how is your long form writing becoming the center of that? Because a lot of people feel like they have to do a bunch of other things to build a community, like go on TikTok or tweet 10 times a day and you you haven't done that which is which is very cool and it still worked for you so what's your whole process in building community well when i started on substack i didn't know what i was doing and i was like i have this idea that substack could work for fiction but could it really and so while i was doing that research i looked on substack to see like you could see that there were substack writers that were making a million dollars a year from their substacks but they were all nonfiction writers so I started like scouring Substack for fiction writers. And at the time, there were only eight other people putting fiction on there. So I reached out to them and was like, hey, you're read, writing fiction on Substack. Like, let's be friends. <laughs> I want to know more about this. 
And originally we had created a Twitter, like a Twitter M, I guess, like a group chat in Twitter. And then we started finding more people that started becoming fiction writers in, in on Substack. And so we started a Discord server called Substack Writers Unite. And just were like, originally it was just like fiction writers in there, but then we added a nonfiction role too, so that there's two roles now in the server. And then, and then when, when I published my article about why I was going to publish fiction on Substack, the Substack team, Hamish, who's one of the founders of Substack, reached out to me via email and was like, this is what we've always wanted, or like, that's so cool. Like, I'm so into that idea. It was very supportive. And they had just hired a community team. And so he like set me up with the brand new Substack community team. And they were like, will you host a, a workshop for Substack fiction writers? So that was like kind of at the beginning of my journey. And I did that. And then that drew a ton of fiction writers to Substack. And Substack mentioned the Discord server. And then just all these Substack writers started joining the Discord server. So it like became this place where... You could like go in and be like, I'm thinking of going paid this week. Who's done it? What tips do you have? Like, I'm just dropped my first chapter. Here's what it's like. What do you guys have any advice? And so it was just all other writers kind of helping each other out. And that was really fun. But eventually I started kind of developing alongside this, this Discord server, started developing a following for my individual Substack, not just for all Substack writers, but like my specific Substack. And my comment se section on each post just started growing to the point where I would have like 80 or 90 wow. comments on an, on an article. I wrote. But I think that it was, I've, I've since kind of workshopped this with other Substack writers because other Substack writers have been like, I hit zero comments. I don't know why nobody is commenting. And I think the reason why my subset gets so many, so much community interaction is because I've never been the expert. Like, it's not like me telling you, here's, here's how it is. It's just like, I feel like this is the, this is the research I'm seeing. Like, are you guys seeing this too? Like, I, I kind of was looking to my readers also for support and for their information. They started sharing resources and links and we kind of just became more of a community in the comments section. And for a long time, I wanted to make that more robust. And I thought about starting a Discord server just for my newsletter. But then I'm a beta tester for Substack. And they started announcing that they were going to do something like Discord, but on platform. And they actually just launched it this week. And so I launched my Substack community, which is called Threads there, which I'm very excited about because it's like you're keeping your community on the same platform mm -hmm. where you're writing as opposed to asking people to try to go somewhere else, which I think can be very tricky. And I know a lot of writers have like, they write on Substack, but then their community is in a Facebook group, but then they promote all their work on Twitter. And I was just like, I don't <laughs> want to do that in one place. It's so nice and tidy. So that's what I have now. It's so much easy, easier that way too. Like you're not pulling from all these different places. Yeah. Everything is just right there. and yeah, you don't have to promote anywhere else or ask people to like, hey, like, come over here to have community. Like, oh, I know. It's awesome. That's amazing, though. You you found your home yeah. and you've also been able to monetize that as well, which I, I am a subscriber. So I'm curious if you have any questions for me and my experience, because it's like subscriber to to author, to creator at this point. But I am curious for you, what has been the way that you've been able to convert free subscribers into paid subscribers and what are the benefits? What is 
what does paying get you? I don't know. That's a really good question. I still don't know why people subscribe for my to my newsletter. I've tried a lot of different things. Like I lock I lock commenting to my paid subscribers now because I wanted to like protect that space and not have haters, even though apparently that just means I locked. And I I used to do interviews with people like Amelia and I would make those paid where I'd like talk all about how amazing Amelia is and be like, if you want to read her interview, like lock the rest of paid. And I would see like two new paid subscribers every time I sent one of those, like on Substack, that's called like a gated post where you can like put a paywall up and after a certain point you have to pay. So I tried that, but now I think I'm not really going to do that anymore because I want people to read the things that I'm writing and I don't want them to just be closed off to a small community. A lot of Substack writers who do really well only have only have comments locked or things like that. So it's, that's what I'm trying right now. Well, we'll see. We'll see if it works. Randomly, I got like 15 new paid subscribers just from my social media posts on Monday. And I don't even know why that is because I didn't lock it. The paid subscribers commenting was locked. I know a couple of people subscribed because they wanted to comment, but yeah, I don't know. Why did you subscribe? I have a real answer to this because I did it. I had already really loved what you were doing. And I was like, kind of like on the fence of like, I think I'm going to make this. Like, I think I'm going to take the plunge and do it. And I'd like never done it before. And like subscribing like for a year, because like if we're thinking like $5, like for, for coffee or something, like that's kind of more impulse. Like I can do that, but I wanted to do it for the year, the annual subscription, which I think was like $50. And that wasn't like an impulse purchase. That was something I was going to make an acquisition on. And I'm also in college. So it's like dispensable incomes, like it's there, but I want to be careful with my money. So I was like, no, I think I'm going to do this. And then you released this kind of like spreadsheet, I think, that was like catered to like traditional published agents if you're querying this year. And I was planning to query this year. I since have revoked that, but we can get into that in a whole other conversation. And I was like, I think I'm going to go make the plunge and do this. So I, I paid and was very pleased with that. But then as it kind of going along, like that was what made me kind of, I was already considering it. That's what got me over the hump. But like, I know you're not going to probably release one of those next year. That's not why I'm there. Now I'm just there because I really like you. And like, it feels like this is how I get to support you. And that's just what got me over the hump. I don't really, I know that sounds weird, but I don't really care what happens (laughs) next year. Like you can do anything and I'm still going to renew because I just want to follow your creative journey now. And even locking things like paid and I don't, I, this sounds really weird, but I don't think because as authors, we are always thinking about how can we provide value to our paid readers that's exclusive. But I don't know if that would be a factor for me. Although that's cool and that can help get new people over the hump. I'm there just to support you in your work. And of course, I want other people to experience it too. For something like your social media post, like I want to send that to my writer friends. And then to have to be like, oh, like it's behind a paywall for them. Like I don't want to force everyone into paying, but there will be a certain percentage I guess 15, as you saw from one post, which is kind of wild. It's amazing, but I'm not surprised to hear that. So that's why I subscribed. It, it was like this relationship that I feel like I have with you. And that to me is something that I've had with a few other people. And if they haven't had a subscription, like I've just like reached out to them and I actually did reach out to L after I subscribed. And I'm like, hey, L, I, I love what you're doing. And then like, I've done that to other creatives and they maybe you don't have a subscription, but I still want to like at least talk to them. And there's nothing more to it than that. Like, I'm not trying to like, get on a FaceTime call with them. I guess I brought her on a podcast, so I I won. But in general, right? Like that's not my goal. It's just to be closer to this person. And I did this once with a friend, Max Reisinger, 
who's now a friend, but he was not a friend. I was just an admirer of his work. And he created like videos about being a creative person and mental health. And I was like, dude, I love what you're doing. And that's pretty much it. And he's like, why don't we jump on a call? And I'm like, okay, that sounds amazing. And then two weeks later, I was flying out to like Detroit with him and a bunch of other creative people. I'm like, it was amazing. So community is super powerful. And yeah, I wanted to support you in that. that. That's my honest thing. But I do think for people out there, at least how it works for me, if you're trying to sell me, to get me to make that like purchase, to get me over the hump is like important because I think the people who already like your work are already considering it. It's always like friction for anyone considering to make a buying decision. Like even if it's like $1, there's still friction. Uh, and it's important to try and like really tell someone like, hey, now's your time. It's okay. Take the plunge now. And I don't think much people are regretting any sort of subscriptions they make to creative people. And I can guarantee you, I don't think Elle has- Going off of that, actually, Michael sent me one of your posts that was behind a a paywall. And then I was like, I want to read this so bad. So I subscribed to you too, after he sent me that post. So it's definitely like the community aspect is definitely there. And I, I completely agree with you. A lot of people who I follow, I follow this one girl on Patreon who does like this really awesome like artwork and she hasn't updated in a year and I just continue to follow her because like I love the artwork so much I want to support her like I don't care if she's not drawing like anymore like I loved it I was like I want more like you don't have to give me more but here it's so true I mean even the people that I support like some of them are silly reasons but all of them is just because like I want to support them like some of them like on Substack, you're, the people you subscribe to is alphabetical. So when you look at my profile, like all the A newsletters show up first. And I was like, but if you have paid newsletters, they show up at the very top. And I was like, well, I want everyone to see that these are the, <laughs> these are the newsletters that I follow. So I like paid for a few just there to show up at the top of my profile. The same reason, right? Like it's like, well, these are my favorite and I will like support them no matter what. And they don't need to publish all the time. And I've been thinking about that with my own work because I do have a $200 tier where I have subscribers who pay to get the print edition of my book and my mag. I did a magazine, print magazine for my last year of my work. So I printed the, the first year of my Substack into a magazine and it's thick. It's a, literally a full-sized, thick ma- like a kinfolk magazine. And the fact that I wrote this, all of this by myself just goes to show you for the price of a magazine subscription, you actually get a magazine. <laughs> so it's not like... It's not like the work is unvaluable or something. So I'm glad that we're creating a a world where writing is valuable. Like completely valuable. But with that is the craziness that I think is really interesting to talk to you about Penguin Random House potentially merging with Simon Schuster. Watching this case is crazy. Like I'm, I'm writing a post right now that's just like all the things that people said during this trial that are just like blowing this industry wide open. It is insane. It is crazy. It, they literally can't. They're, they're trying to determine if this would be a monopoly, and they literally can't because they don't know the size of the market because Amazon hides their numbers. Could you imagine just not yep. knowing how big a market is because it's just like all secret? And not only do you not know that, they have started this debate because of how the defense and the prosecution's kind of framing things. And there was a New York article titled, Is Publishing Art or Commerce? Something like that. It was it basically Commerce. word for word. That. Really fascinating discussion. And Books? Art, authors? Art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, artistry, for sure. 
But that was the biggest feedback I got from my Esquire article. Everyone was tearing me down. Like authors in the literary community were like, you're trying to make books into a commercial capitalist, like greedy thing. And I was like, wait, by wait. So what do you think publishing houses do right now? Yeah. They literally buy the work that they think is going to make the most in sales, not not what's the most literary work. And not only that, but they buy it outright. They own the rights to the art, to the book. The author doesn't own anything anymore. Like they could do whatever they want with your book. How do you not see that as like a capitalist commercial empire? Like that is not, that is not for literary value at all. I, I agree completely. And I think we should maybe give people a little bit of context on the Esquire article. So yes. in, in, as in summing up, because it, it's quite, quite a beautiful piece so i don't want you to to ruin the nuance but trying to keep the nuance in how would you sum it up well i just made the case that you could you could theoretically invest in your favorite book like you say you read harry potter when the first book comes out and you're like oh i really love this i would love to invest in it just as you could in the stock market you could buy a number of shares and own like three percent of harry potter which if you still owned today you'd be a billionaire so this is antithetical to the current model where, as we said, publishing, the publishing house just owns your work outright. In this model, investors would be a part of the equation and you could, the author could still own like 51% of your art and then have these funders that are like investing in the 49% and still get your work funded while still retaining ownership of your work. And the Esquire article in particular argues that you could do this using blockchain technology, but it doesn't, even need blockchain technology to make that happen but that was just the premise of the article and so i wrote a tweet that went something like what if you could invest in your favorite book what if you could get rich if it succeeds what if you could buy characters of your favorite novel and use them to write fan fiction but yeah literary community hated that idea like with a vengeance thinking that that was destroying publishing that it was this this turning it into this capitalist endeavor and i was like wait like taylor swift right now can't even like her music is owned in a vault by some venture capitalist company and she has no control over it whatsoever. That's why she's re-recording all of her original albums right now. Like, could you imagine how it would change to say, instead of a publisher owning 100% of your work, they could only own 49%. Like, it's a better deal. It's not a better deal than self-publishing. And self-publishing, if you can afford to own your own work 100% and still be able to handle marketing and distribution and, and getting fans and all of that, then... Absolutely. Self-publishing is the best way to go. If you want to some help with distribution and marketing and you want some investment to do that, then having investors involved is such a better option than getting a publishing house involved. So, but then again, I'm a, I'm yeah. a journalist that covers the tech industry and I watch these investing deals happen all the time. I'm just like, why don't books happen like this? It's super interesting. Venture capital itself was born out of Hollywood and that's just as much as having Stanford nearby and access to all of the semi semiconductor like raw materials, all these things that were in the Silicon Valley area, a lot of things that Silicon Valley came to be. But one of the biggest was access to capital and friendly banks because they were used to taking these kinds of risks on movies. And movies and books are pretty connected. One thing that I dislike about the venture capital law, how everything's incentivized to be a power law, and it already works like this in the author industry where we always think about the big breakout books. We admire it. That's where most of the money comes from. And that's what investors and, and authors and publishers are all incentivized to try and, and create. And basically like 
creating not monopolies, but these massive story empires, these franchises. Something about that rubs me wrong. And something about what you're doing with the novelist, with this whole creator economy, this feels like maybe an antidote to that. And I'm curious how you'd put what you just said in conversation with that. Well, okay. For example, I made $15,000 for my Substack last year. That is not enough to quit my job and do that full time. So that means that I will be working 40 hours a week and doing this on top of my job. A lot of people do this. This is how a lot of people in the creator economy get their start. But I will also say that there's a reason why a lot of creator economy folks are super young because they're like either they get their start fresh out of college when they don't need to have a job yet, or they're doing it during college when they don't have a lot of other things going on, responsibilities. So it's like very much easier to just like, okay, I'm going to take one year, put my all into my Substack or my YouTube channel or my Instagram or whatever, and like make, see if I can make a living from it. Yeah, that's me. That's full disclosure. That's me. Yeah, it's much <laughs> later on, right? So I'm not going to just quit my job and make $15,000 a year. So where I think this can be helpful is, okay, if I look at my stats, I I took a look at my stats and it's like, uh, I could just pull them up. It's something like at my current conversion rate, which is like 5% of my list converts to paid. And the current rate at which I gain new, new newsletter subscribers, which is I gain about 250 new newsletter subscribers a month, then I will need about 20,000 newsletter subscribers free to be able to have the amount of paid newsletter subscribers I would need to earn like $70,000 a year. At my current rate of gaining subscribers, that would take me 7.7 years to arrive. Am I going to keep writing a weekly newsletter every single week for seven years and then maybe take it full time at that point? I could see why you might not want to do that. And at some point you might burn out in a couple of years. I might just decide I'm spending too much time at the computer and I want to have other hobbies. So I think that if you can provide that investment upfront to an author, that could be really helpful. If somebody wants to come in and say, I want to invest in the novelist, I'll give you $100,000 so you can do it full time for the next year. And like that will seed it. And then we go from there. Like I, I could see that being an attractive thing because it just makes everything happen so much faster. I think you, you see this happen all the time with creator economy startups where it eventually peters out because they weren't able to make it full time. And so I think sometimes having some upfront funds or like startup capital actually could really help a lot of artists, at least at the beginning, especially if they show promise. So I think that would I want to like do that right now? Probably not. Like I'm not really keen to give away any percentage of my art right now because I'm doing okay. And I've, I've found like a balance. I don't need anything else, but I could definitely see the appeal. Me and Amelia have even faced this with building what we're trying to do, building a subscription platform for fiction authors. We were really strong about like not wanting to go the publisher route, which the publisher route of building a technology company very much felt like similar to the venture capital model. Eventually, 80 to 90% of your company is going to end up being owned by people who might not share the incentives and interests of the community. And that just wasn't an option for us. And then there was this other extreme of like, well, you bootstrap it, which is like what we're doing full disclosure. And we were also exploring these kind of like middle ground paths, but there's not many good options either for anyone who's doing anything, never mind if you're a writer. And that would be something cool that I would like to help solve one day. You can only do so much at once. And we're just focused on very similar, trying to be sustainable, 
plug along. Things happen at a slower rate, but maintaining that ownership is very important. But man, if there was a way to help like our community be a part of that, like actually made sense, that would be something we'd consider, except the, the infrastructure, the culture, the conversation isn't there yet. But I think you're helping push it forward. And I really respect that. There are two options for that middle ground, though, because you can... Well, one, you can crowdfund from fans, which I think is a great option, but you can also use the platform Republic and crowdfund equity. So you could go directly to your fans and say, do you want to fund this company that we're building? We're giving away 30% of it to the fans and they can, they can buy in for a small amount each and be owners. That's what the Bucket List family did. They were like an Instagram yeah. Family, they wanted to make an animated video about their family's travels and they crowdfunded it a portion of it on Republic and just like their Instagram followers paid a hundred dollars each and got like a small tiny little portion of equity, but they could invest more. So there is that option now to crowdfund directly from your fans and even to crowdfund investment from your fans, which is interesting. Right now, I think that those ideas are fairly niche and Subscription models are really what's coming into prominence. People are starting to get used to subscribing to the things that they want to receive. People are not used to investing in companies on Republic. So I'm going to stick where like the mass appeal is and those niche things. Maybe you could do them if you're Stephen King and you want to crowdfund your book on Republic. You could make that happen. But I think you have to already have a very big audience to make that work. And for you, because you're having nonfiction and fiction or you're creating kind of stories and work that relies on earned insight and research, things that maybe a fiction author like Amelia, for instance, I don't think does any of that, but I would be curious to hear about your subscription. And for you, Elle, I'm, I'm also really curious to hear about how have you balanced the, the fiction, the nonfiction in your newsletter? And what have you learned throughout that kind of process over the last year and a half that you've been doing this? Yeah, the last year I did too much. I would have always have a newsletter on Monday, alternating an essay I wrote with an interview with another author. And then on Fridays, I would send new book chapters, but that was sending two things a week. And I was writing one of them and then editing the other one. It was definitely, well, it was too much. And I was also marketing myself and my newsletter and pitching it all the time. So that was a lot of work. I had start initially planned on doing, I was calling it my full send summer where I was going to spend a whole summer focused solely on marketing. And then it ended up turning into a full send <laughs> year, which I just concluded. So now I feel like I'm set up more for sustainability. Like now that my book is done, now that I've finished like designing the print edition, I can kind of design things differently this year. So now I'm just having a newsletter on Mondays and occasional interviews first in. And even my fiction chapters will come on a Monday. So it'll be like in place of a newsletter that week. So I actually keep a content calendar in the app Asana. So I can see like all the articles that are, I plan on publishing like through October right now. And interspersed with that is fiction chapters. So I'm going to kind of just alternate between like essays and fiction chapters going forward. Do you see yourself wanting to continue with this subscriptions and then self-publishing, bundling up the fiction novels you're doing? Or do you see yourself also wanting to kind of bundle your essays into a nonfiction novel? Where do you see like book as their place in your overall vision? Because we talked about how readers don't read books anymore, but readers are reading your newsletter. Yeah, exactly. So newsletters, I feel like it's a very burgeoning market right now. And people are like subscribing to newsletters. 
I think that's going to start overtaking like subscribing to publications or paying for the New York Times or the the New Yorker or the Economist or something. You'll probably just subscribe to your favorite authors instead or favorite writers. I think that will continue to become kind of how we consume content from, I mean, even if you think about the people that you're interested in, you don't, you no longer wait to till Business Insider reports the latest thing Elon Musk does. You just follow Elon Musk mm-hmm. directly on Twitter. So I'm optimizing for the newsletter format. I'll see what happens with that. But my book, Oblivion, what I plan to do is have two books at the end of it. So it might take me the next three years to serialize Oblivion and to like write newsletters as well. But at the end of it, I will print the novel and also another book that matches it. My plan is white linen bound books with gold. But yeah, so one one will be the novel and one will be all the essays that went into making the novel. If you kind of think about like some popular old novels, like I have the pillow book. It's like a really ancient book that was written in like China. And I have the pillow book and the pillow book companion, which was some author wrote, like dissected it and was wrote all about it and stuff. So that's kind of how I'm seeing mine is I'll be writing both live, but at the end there'll be two books and they will match my obscurity, which is a black cover with golden box. So then I'll have the white, the darkness and the light. I'm curious with these kinds of projects you have going on and all your insight into publishing with fiction authors specifically, what would be your advice to someone who's trying to kind of balance this free versus paid approach? There's a really common strategy that People offer exclusive access or early access to their stories on a site like Heatron or Substack, put it behind a kind of paywall. And for you, kind of how, what would be your advice to people who are doing that, given that you've taken a slightly different approach? I don't have any advice because I don't really know what works yet, but I will say that the way that I'm planning on doing it is making my novel chapters free and my essay chapters free and just locking comments and the community portion to paid. So. That's how I'm going to do it. And we'll see what happens. I love the homeless. She's far smarter than she's letting on, but I totally think that's a great approach. So then I asked Elle about her recent thoughts when applying to a job as a journalist. She already is a journalist, but she was applying to a new job. And this is what she had to say and contains some really great advice for pretty much all of us writers who are out here trying to do what we love, but also have a full-time job. But in the process, I asked them, like, what is the workload like? Yeah, and I did not get a good answer. So I was like, no. She used all red flag words. It was like, well, I have to be honest. It's very intense. Most of our editors work longer than eight-hour days to meet their deadline. And these are this is a salary position. But we do to like make up for how intense we know it is during the year. We do give people five weeks off so that they can fully recharge. And I was like, that just sounds like that's going to be horrible. And I'm going to be underpaid because I'm going to be working more than 40 hours a week. And yeah, so I wasn't into that. And interestingly, I think this this is a journalism, publishing, media-wide thing where writers are underpaid and overworked. And that's when I just kind of, I was listening to her say this and I just thought, well, on Substack, I have writers who val- who do value my work and who don't want to take portions of my free time and just, and just use that. Like, I, I think that this is finally, we're so finally seeing a shift in the media industry where, where it's no longer like I need to write to try to get page views for my company, but I need to write just because my readers find meaning in that. And that is so much better to me. So yeah, what you're alluding to, as I said in a post this morning, that 
I'm no longer going to accept jobs like that. And in fact, I'm going to focus on my newsletter being my next job because it's the place where writing is valued. I think that you're creating such meaning in the lives of your readers, but as writers, we're all doing that. And it's just very difficult to know because we write something, they read it, and we have no reaction. We're not like on a stage performing in front of them and we get to see them go like wild. And I'm happy about that. I don't want to perform on a stage, but it does make it a little bit harder to understand like what your real value is worth. And a musician charges like $80, I think, cheap nowadays to go to like a musician's concert, it feels like. And and that's like, people are paying it. I'm, I think it's great that artists are getting paid, although the music industry has lots of different incentives and people on the take. That's a totally other conversation. But artists, like for that experience, right? So it's not cheap. And the experience that you're giving your readers either is really meaningful and valuable. And I'm really glad that you get to decide what that value can look like for you. That's just, that's the ultimate, right? And I think it's really cool that you you have that. I'm really grateful that well, like the creator economy is happening right now and that artists are finally finding a way to make a living from their art. So this is a resurgence and I think it's only going to make art proliferate. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited too. And if you're looking for a guide on your journey through the creator economy as a writer, you should definitely, as I've said plenty of times, but I mean it, you should check out L and the novelist Do it. and her newsletter. But that, that'll conclude our conversation now. <laughs> Stack.com. Just... Yeah. The, Link will be in the subscription or the the link will be in the description as well. So you won't miss it first thing. And otherwise, Elle, thank you so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Obviously, Amelia is a huge Oh, stop. <laughs> I've interviewed her Amelia. So awesome. All right, that's it for this podcast. I'm just going to do a little life update in the end. I think me and Amelia are going to come back to like doing this ourselves together. But life's been busy for us both. So I'm just going to hop on the camera this time. And next time, we'll try and bring her on with us because who doesn't want to hear from the best-selling subscription superstar, Amelia Rose? But if you want to hear from me, I just kind of got to college this week. I'm in my dorm room now. We're here. Luckily, since I'm a junior now, I'm kind of like, not half classes, but pretty much. So I've been basically working full-time on Ream and doing this podcast and talking to authors as well, which is always really fun. I did just finish writing a book. So I guess now I'm doing that. I was mainly focused on the writing just a few weeks ago. It's a nonfiction book called Creator Economy for Authors. So it's coming on the way soon. And depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it may already be out in the world. And that's been kind of most of my life. I've been trying to take good care of myself, sleeping a lot, you know, the typical things. I just feel really happy and really grateful overall. Like, honestly, there's not much like bad to report. Life's good. And I couldn't be more excited for what's to come for not only the world of subscriptions, but the world of authors in general, because I think that we're on the precipice of some really great things that can bring more power to our community and that can ultimately do better things for us and our readers. So I'm really excited for it. And we hope to keep sharing these insights in the podcast. You know, up to this point, we've still kind of been trying to get the ropes of what this podcast is going to be. And I think we've really kind of narrowed it down. We've had some experimental and we've really been trying to figure out, okay, like, what do we want to do here? Like, yes, we're talking about subscriptions, but who do we want to talk to and what kind of conversations do we want to have? And I, I think we now have the answer to those questions. And, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know, I think what we really want to do is highlight a different kind of success story. The success story of not the person who's made it big and can only it. That's beautiful and amazing. Not the person who's got a seven-figure deal 
traditional publisher, that's also great. But we want to highlight the success stories of an author who's able to build their own community, their own fandom, and monetize it in a way that's sustainable, which typically ends up being through subscription. So we want to highlight these stories. The people like Amelia Rose being able to come up from almost nothing to be making almost five figures a month of subscriptions in a very short period of time. Those kind of stories, the people who were able to figure something out, this kind of new publishing model that from the outside looking in almost doesn't make sense. It's like kind of unbelievable that someone pulled this off. But people like Amelia are doing it. We're going to talk to more and more people just like that and share their stories. Do we know how we're going to have these conversations? We're still experimenting on that one. That one, we might have to take another 10, 20 episodes to get through. This is episode nine, if you're listening to it. And literally every podcast episode, I just sit here and I reflect and I try and like obsessively think like, how can this be better? And I definitely think that we know what conversations we have and who we want to talk to, which are the big things. With that, if you have any ideas of what specific people we can talk to, knowing what kind of person we want to talk to, then we'd love to hear it. And if you're that kind of person, we'd love to have you on our podcast because we're releasing this every week and we really want to continue enriching this community and showing more and more authors what's possible with this business model that we think will be the future of publishing. Otherwise, give us your feedback. Definitely rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it. It, it's pretty helpful to us because it helps more people see this podcast and we're just doing this ourselves and trying to get this word out to more authors. So if this is, again, something you're passionate about, if this is a podcast and subscriptions is something that you believe in, then we definitely want to spread the word so that more people and more readers can be happy in an ecosystem like this. Anyways, totally enough for me. We'll keep trying to do some of these like footnotes in the end. We'll see how it goes. Anyways, you guys are the best. I hope you all have an amazing rest of your day and happy writing.